according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Philippians tonight. Philippians, and looking to wrap up the last details here of this second paragraph. You recall we took the chapter and we put it into three sections, and uh, we're at the end of the second section. And uh, before we move on to the third section, I'm actually going to take a few classes to do a topical study. We'll break out into a a doctrinal study on uh, different things as it relates to what we've been talking about here in uh, ministry. The um, rightly motivated brothers and the wrongly motivated brothers. And both groups uh, responded to Paul's circumstances and the persuasion of the Lord so as to enter into ministry. And uh, I find that interesting. We've been talking about it. And uh, the more I've been looking at it and the more I've been praying over what uh, we have going on here and uh, as a training ministry and different believers that are praying about their giftedness and their ministries and their effects and what uh, what kind of uh, Lost Pines Bible Church or Corpus Christi Bible Church or what have you, what kind of doors may be opening uh, for men in training. Um, and kind of led me to put some things together. So I think starting on Sunday, we'll uh, begin with that uh, that topical study and uh, take a few classes to deal with those principles, and then we'll be ready to uh, to tackle the final paragraph here, where we learn that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And uh, excited to get into verses twenty-one through thirty when we uh, when we reach that point. All right. Before we do any of this tonight, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions to humble us under the authority of eternal truth, shall we pray. Dear Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful once again that uh, it's not our faithfulness, but your faithfulness, Father, that keeps these doors open and the bills paid and the lights are on, and here we are, Father. And I pray that you would once again manifest your faithfulness to lead us into the truth that you would reward the hunger of your children, the desire to study to show themselves approved. And Father, uh, provide abundantly. Uh, equip us with that which we need to know. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to start with some questions tonight, so uh, we can get our microphone ready to go. Microphone is ready to go. There was one that came by email, and then we'll come up here to the front row. Bill had an email about the book of Jonah. Um, in Jonah 1.5, the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. So yeah, these are pagan sailors praying to pagan gods, false gods. But then uh, down in verse 14, they call out to Yahweh, they call out to the Lord. And uh, the reason why is because in between, Jonah's going to have a testimony here, and uh, after they draw lots and they, they narrow it down and they find out that Jonah is the, uh, the guilty party. So then he testifies, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So then the men became extremely frightened and they said, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. And so um, anyway, so they're going to uh, throw him overboard. They're going to call out to Yahweh here. I don't, I don't view this as a salvation moment. Um, and I don't know if different commentaries might take it that way. Um, so the question is, could we say that they became believers 
Or did they just recognize God as another God in their plurality of God's belief? I suspect that was probably the case. But um, I'm willing to be wrong. If <laughs> I'd be happy to see him in heaven someday. But um, I just don't think we can build a strong case one way or the other based on the, the limited text that we have there. So anyway, I appreciate that. And uh, front row then, we got a uh, question up here. Chuck has a question. Get the microphone to you. Okay, my, so my question is, oh, it's in Leviticus 1, basically the first five verses. Uh, verse 2 says, speak to the sons of Israel and say, when any man brings an offering, and then in verse 3 says, his, if his offering is a burnt offering, and then verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and then 5, he shall slay young, the young bull before the Lord. So my question is, does that mean that the people who brought their offerings brought them to the gate of the temple and they're the ones who killed the animal? Mm-hmm. And then the Levites took the blood? But but the actual penitent, or whatever you want to call him, right. was actually the one who slaughtered their own animal. I, that's how I read it. I think that's the way. And I have not taught Leviticus verse by verse or, or comprehensively, but I believe that's how I read it. And I think that's, and that's a good way to, to identify the fact that I'm the sinner, and this substitute's taking my place, and since I'm the one that should be dead, I'm, it's going to be by my hand that that, uh, that did that. It's kind of like I appreciate how uh, when Mel Gibson made that Passion of the Christ movie, you know, it was his hands holding the hammer. They zoomed in on the hands, and th- those were Mel Gibson's hands that he filmed pounding the nails in, So if I heard the story right anyway, but... Um, but ultimately, wasn't it my hands that was pounding? Of course, I'm the one <laughs> that crucified the Christ. So the imagery there is is uh, is powerful, and I appreciate that. So, All right, uh, back to the back row again. Keep the microphone runner running. Who else has a question tonight? We can, okay, we'll get you next and you next. Oh, that was just a wave. Okay. See, so if you're waving to a friend when you come to church, I'm going to call on you for a question. All right, yes, sir. I have like six questions, but I'll just ask the one. Okay. And I saw you checked the clock. It's, uh, it, it's at, they're all in Malachi. Uh-huh. Um, but the question that, I, that I'm kind of, the thing I'm kind of puzzled over is in uh, Malachi 1, um, two, uh, 2 through 3, and it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Mm-hmm. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yeah, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, uh, we can teach it from the context of this passage. We can also go into the book of Romans where this passage gets quoted and it gets used as an illustration pertaining to, uh, to God and His sovereignty and His glory and His purpose and, and so forth. It's, uh, it's interesting because when Paul makes that use of, of this passage, he makes that use of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, but then he also connects it with the choice in the womb that the older will serve the younger. And, and it's interesting because Paul took two completely unrelated things and put them together when he was teaching that in, in, the, in, in, in Romans. Uh, so 
Anyway, here in Malachi, the idea of, of uh, the hatred for Esau is not with respect to them still being in the womb together, but in, with respect to the course that those nations went in the, in the idolatry that, that Esau represented in the centuries afterwards and the, the conflict that, uh, that Esau was towards the Jewish people. So by the time you get to Malachi, this is you know 400 B.C., this is centuries, centuries after the twins were, were physically walking the earth. So does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes, God is a hater uh, because God is love. And uh, there's many things that God hates. And in the Bible it lays them right out there. Six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And, and so when we, when we rightly describe hate as not being sinful but as being holy and righteous and just, hate is what we learn. Hate is a love expression. And so when you have a love for Jesus Christ, you have a hatred for those things that are opposed to Jesus Christ. And when you have a love for Israel, you have a hatred for Esau. And that's, that's the corollary there. And so we, we also, if we have an attitude that's different from God's attitude, then, then we need the attitude adjustment. So there is a, it's like be angry yet do not sin. There's the, the concept of a sanctified hate in the sense of a righteous indignation that, that loves what God loves. And just one more uh, real quick question, and you uh-huh. probably won't have time to answer this tonight because it's pretty in depth. I, I would assume, but uh, Chuck and I have talked several times about you know the you know the hatred of God and and so forth, and you know how we we should hate the things that God hates, so forth and so on. Well, then the question that we never seem to be able to answer between the the, the two of us is, well, what's our role within that hatred? How should we function? you know, still functions spiritually from that hatred. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically the question. How do we remain, you know, in fellowship, but yet still have hatred? Well, that's what I'm saying. If it's a sanctified attitude, then there's no carnality with it. So you're already in fellowship as you hate. You're already in fellowship as you love. And so I think it's only when when you lose the objectivity and you lose the focus on Scripture, then that the hatred degenerates into carnality, and then you've got to confess that to be restored back to fellowship again. So um, I think the best thing is like with the book of Jude, I know you've been reading lately, you leave it in the hands of God's sovereignty. You leave it to, in the justice function of the justice of God, and, and, and you, uh, you leave it in the Lord's hands. And so you hate it, but then you're stepping back and your hands off and you're, you're, uh, the idea of abhorrence or abominations, you're pushing it far from you. Uh, what you don't want to do, though, is take matters in your own hands to try to inflict your wrath or try to destroy something or try to you know, make, it, make them pay for because you hate them. And that's, that's not what we're called to do. Uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. We can't, uh, we can't handle that. So um, that, that's how I would answer that. Okay. And then uh, Eliezer, we'll give Eliezer our... Possibly last question. We'll see how the time goes. And then uh, I wouldn't be opposed to uh, coming back to questions at the end of the hour if uh, we're otherwise out of time. Yes, sir? Is there only one David in all of the Bible? And, or are there many? There is only one David in all the Bible, and that's the son of Jesse, the first king, the, the man after God's own heart. Nobody else has that name. That's pretty unusual because uh, a lot of times there's five or six or a dozen, you know, there's a whole bunch of others that have duplicate names, but I'm not aware of any other David at all. Okay. Was that a question? No, it was a wave. All right. See, that happens. All right. Any additional questions tonight? All right. Well, then join me in Philippians 1. Thank you, Chris. And uh, we'll return to where we were on Sunday.
Also, I keep forgetting to click on my uh, little drawing thing. If I have to draw, we'll, uh, we'll get that going. Did some drawing this morning, and I'm getting better, hopefully. <laughs> All right, greater progress of the gospel. And uh, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he wants them to know this, and it's supposed to be motivational for them, that they themselves are going to be excited about what's moving forward. And, uh, and we'll see that when we get into the next section, when he talks about uh, remaining on in the flesh, which is necessary for their sake. And um, in verse 25, Paul's going to express his confidence that the Philippians are going to make progress and joy in their faith, and uh, that they've got some amazing things in front of them. And all of that's coming out as a consequence of being notified what Paul has gone through, what his imprisonments have been like and what the conflict has been like and how God has used that. And so circumstances, when you watch others in their circumstances, it can be powerful. And we've got biblical examples of that. We've got church history examples of that. We've got modern day examples of that. When uh, you know certain folks learn about uh, martyrdom on the part of certain missionaries, then others will get excited and and just jump right on in there, you know. Or think about uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Think about uh, you know her husband and those men and how they were massacred and what uh, what the Lord then did with with the widows and uh, and that. But anyway, so this whole concept about the imprisonment for the cause of Christ becoming well known, and uh, and then verse fourteen. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, persuaded by the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so we have a trigger, what I call a trigger moment. And I try to teach a lot of different triggers. Tonight we're going to see a joy trigger, the, uh, what it is that sparks joy. And even, uh, even the wrongly motivated crowd still sparked Paul's joy when he says, hey, at least they're preaching Christ, and in this I will rejoice. And so we find things to rejoice about, even if maybe some of the circumstances themselves are not intrinsically joyful, we still can rejoice in the Lord, and we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. And, uh, and so if we're going to obey that, I think passages like this are going to be helpful in teaching us uh, how to do that. How, to, how do we rejoice when some things are not intrinsically joyful? or joyous, see. Well, we rejoice in the Lord, and that's what we see illustrated here. And so, uh, starting here in verse 14, we have the brethren, most of them, and how they were persuaded and how they were emboldened. And this is what then launched all these ministries. And however many there were, we don't know, but it was most of them, were involved in preaching Christ. And so we can be thankful for that. And some had the right reasons, and some had the wrong reasons, but they were all preaching Christ. And so, at the end of the day, Paul was thankful in, uh, in that regard. So uh, we spent some time a week ago and then again on Sunday going through these points. Point four, the what then question. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's useful for us uh, quite often to ask this of ourselves, to ask the what then question, ask the so what question. What does this mean? What do I do about it? How is this shaping me? Why do I need to know this? Why do I care? And, and I think it's a weakness if we don't get to that kind of a question. If all we're doing is giving out information and we're not stopping to ask, well, what then? Uh, how does it apply to me? What do I do with this? How do I live this out? Does it make a difference? Is it, just, uh, is it just information that I know something so that I can know more than the next guy? Is that, is that the purpose? I want to know more than the next guy? What, what do I do with that knowledge? Understanding, of course, that knowledge puffs up 
and love edifies. So uh, why do I need to know this? I'm driving home from church and saying, Father, why did you teach me this? What is it you expect me to do with this? How am I equipped now? How is this going to shape my thinking, uh, shape my attitude, guide my thinking? How is this uh, doctrine going to help me choose my words? How is this doctrine going to drive my actions? And if, if I'm not being affected in every area of my life by doctrine, then why am I learning? Why am I learning these things? What's it supposed to be doing? It's the living and abiding Word of God. And it does its work in you who believe. If you're walking by faith, you're taking this Word in. That Word is expected to do, to do its work. So I do like the what then question. And then he answers with the only this. And uh, he says, either way, whether by pretense or by truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. And so we talked about the two dative cases, the fact that they are dative of means, dative of instrument, dative of motive, as we talk about this, either a pretense or the truth, either for a fake reason or the real reason. Either way, Christ was being proclaimed. And, uh, and, and so bottom line then, Paul, uh, Paul was thankful. You know, it's curious to me, uh, let's, let's think about these, these phonies, right? These these uh, pretentious uh, preachers, okay? And, uh, and so they're out there, they're on the street, they're giving the gospel, whatever they're doing, and they're motivated by, is totally wrong. Their motivation is to cause Paul distress, their motiv- motivation is strife, envy. Uh, they've got all the wrong motives. Maybe they're trying to build a name for themselves or whatever. Uh, despite all that, the, the, the people they're meeting, the people they're talking to are hearing the gospel, are they not? <laughs> and is, is the Holy Spirit still capable of communicating an eternal gospel and capable of convicting an unbeliever of sin, righteousness, and ju- judgment? Of bringing that, uh, putting power into the message even if the speaker is carnal? Can the Holy Spirit not uh, reach the lost that are predestined to get saved that day? <laughs> okay, I believe so. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, folks that have gotten saved from bad gospel messages. And, uh, and then uh, they, they come to faith in Christ, they start to grow, they start to learn some doctrine, and before too long they start to realize, you know what, I think the evangelist that uh, got me into this, uh, I don't think he was uh, really on board with a lot of truth, <laughs> you know. But uh, hey, praise God that uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I believe even a carnal evangelist, uh, the Holy Spirit can still work not obviously the ideal and not the design, but as Paul says, Christ is being preached. And if Christ is being preached, what else do you need for faith to respond to Christ being preached? So there's different things there. I forget who the story was. There's a a man that was listening to Herbert W. Armstrong on the radio. And I don't know if you know Herbert W. Armstrong, that name, or the Worldwide Church of God and all that. I mean, it's horrible, horrible doctrine, horrible. You don't want to be mixed up in, in that. But he was on the radio and was very famous and, and um, this, this guy, uh, he was listening to the radio and he heard this preaching and, and he got saved. And, uh, and like I'm talking about, he uh, didn't take him too long as he started growing in the, in the scriptures to realize that that whole worldwide church of God thing was, was not biblical. And anyway, found better teachers and got plugged into to faithful churches and, and uh, anyway went on to become a pastor later in his life. But went back to the fact that it was a horrible gospel message on the radio that led to him trusting Christ for eternal life. And, and I just praise God, you know, and that turning cursing into blessing and working all things together for good and, and uh, 
accomplishing a great number of things. So anyway, so that's what we were dealing with on Sunday. And I believe we got through everything there, including 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And so we've seen the idea of a prophesis. We've seen the idea of a pretense. It's a stated reason that's not true. But that's the reason we're going with, all right? And sometimes people will play along with your phony reason, okay? Because they don't want to know the truth either. (laughs) So they're kind of happy to accept the lie for what it is and pretend that it's true. And it's just a phony reason, okay? And we're familiar with this. It doesn't matter, I mean, any language, Greek, Hebrew, English, whatever. We're all accustomed to this because humans have been making excuses ever since Adam and Eve, right? Adam was blaming Eve and Eve was blaming the serpent and everyone has an excuse for something. And uh, so we're very familiar with excuses, and that's what a prophesis is, a pretense. And then uh, the beautiful thing about truth, okay? Uh, we didn't look at all 109 uses of Aletheia in the New Testament. What we focused on was the places where Aletheia is used, the Greek noun for truth, but where it's used in the dative case, where it's used as an instrument or a means or a sphere uh, as uh, as it is connected there. And so I thought those verses are interesting. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth, for example. And uh, the fact that love rejoices in the truth. That love rejoices either in the sphere of the truth or by means of the truth. That it's the truth that allows love to rejoice. And it, whichever way you want to take that date of case, um, the rejoicing is on the basis of truth. Not, not the lie, not sin, not unrighteousness. We don't approve of sin and say we're doing it because of love, because love rejoices in the truth. And I would just encourage you to you know, write down 1 Corinthians 13, 6, uh, not the address, but the verse, write it out, memorize it, dwell on it, and then the next time one of these uh, wishy-washy liberals tries to tell you that we can, we can uh, accept sin as being okay because we love them, um, you'll be equipped to answer that and say, wait a minute. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And, uh, and there it is. All right. Um, and the rest of those we can let go for, for tonight. If you miss Sunday, I encourage you to get the MP3. It's just sitting there on the website doing nothing. Uh, you, can, uh, you can download it. And, uh, and there you go. And it's almost like, you know, infinity. It's like God's Word. It's because it's you can take it, but it's still there for the next guy to take it. And it's, it's amazing how that works, and I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, let's uh, deal with the last little bit of this then, which we'll tie it together, and then we can get a preview for the next paragraph, and, and we'll see how long this takes, though, because this is our introduction to joy and rejoicing. And um, it's a concept that's used again and again and again in, uh, in the book. We actually had one brief reference in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy, Am I every prayer for you all? So there was a noun there of kara, the joy. But this is our first use of the verb, and it's used twice. It's used in the present tense, and it's used in the future tense. And, uh, and I like that. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Present tense, right? Present active indicative right here, right now. I am now rejoicing. And then he goes on to say, yes, and I will rejoice in the future tense. All right, so we have present tense rejoicing and we have future tense rejoicing. And uh, that tandem I like. In fact, I chew on that a lot, thinking, how is that 
What a blessing is that, that your present rejoicing is actually conducive to keeping it going. <laughs> it's conducive to more rejoicing down the road. And uh, if uh, rejoicing is something that you uh, are thinking about doing someday, you know, uh, just not now, of course, because right now uh, I'm not rejoicing. Right now I'm, I'm lamenting. Right now I'm grieving. Right now I'm mad at God or whatever. You know, um, it's, not, it's not an either or. It's rejoice always. All right? So we want to be presently rejoicing in the Lord. And if we are presently rejoicing in the Lord, we can expect even greater rejoicings down the road. And so uh, we'll deal with that as well. Let's talk about rejoicing triggers. I like triggers. Causes. The proclamation of Christ is cause for rejoicing. And we talk about what, what is a cause, what is just cause? What is a cause for war? What is a cause for anything? What is a cause for rejoicing? What is a cause for prayer? What is a cause for preaching? Okay, There's a lot of things that become causes or they become triggers. I like the word trigger, like a, like a tripwire or something. Something gets triggered and uh, something happens. And so instead of triggering my temper tantrum, uh, I want it to trigger my prayer life. Okay, I want to I respond. I want to call it a prayer trigger instead of a temper tantrum trigger. Because okay? you know, once you get past about the age of two, it's just you should be done with that. And, and so we, we want to use these things for prayer triggers. We want to use them for uh, rejoicing triggers. Because Paul says this was his rejoicing trigger. So point six, the proclamation of Christ is cause for rejoicing. There's a Latin phrase called casus belli. Have you heard of that? Uh, that if, um, you know, if, it's, if, if you say it in Latin, it's more official. But you just say, hey, that's a cause for war. It's an act of war. That nation did something that we view as provocative as an act of war. And so now, because they conducted that act of war, we are now responding in self-defense. Okay, And that's the whole idea of casus belli, that we have a cause. We're not just aggressively going out and conquering somebody or beating up a little guy or doing something on an aggressive basis um, as, a, as an aggressor, as a, as a conqueror or what have you. But we are responding to a, to a casus belli, okay? And uh, for a cause for war. So I'm, I'm going to use that as a model for a cause for joy, right? We should have causes for joy. We should respond to things and say, I'm going to rejoice in that, all right? Instead of complaining about that, because the Bible says, do all things without grumbling. And um, I checked, and it, that's what it means is uh, we're supposed to do all things without grumbling or disputing, right? We're supposed to be serving Him. And so I don't want it to be a cause for grumbling. I don't want that root of bitterness to spring up and by it many be defiled. I want to view these things as a cause for joy. And since no one had ever written a Latin phrase for that, I wrote one. It's called casus uh, casus gaudii, I guess. I, I ran it past Jacob to make sure I got my Latin right. But I forgot to ask him how to pronounce it. Um, cause for joy, all right? And, uh, and that. There is actually a good article if you want to read on Wikipedia on Cassus Belly. And um, you can either go to the website or you can load it in uh, Logos. Did you know Logos has a Wikipedia feature? Have you realized that? They've had it since version 6 and they brought it over into version 7. So uh, if, you're, if you've got your Logos open, you go up here to Tools and um, 
right down there is the Wikipedia tab. And so you, you open up the Wikipedia tab and, and then it just shows up there in a window right next to your Bible window. And, and uh, even better, of course, than uh, the webpage Wikipedia is if, if, there's, if there happen, they won't be here, but if there happen to be any uh, Bible articles, Bible passages, links to a, a verse, then you can just click it and your Bible will go there because you're, you're, you're not in a web browser, you're inside your Logos Bible software application. So anyway, as if you don't have enough to read in your Logos Bible software, you can add the whole Wikipedia index. All right, casus belli is a Latin expression meaning act or event that provokes or is used to justify war. Is that too small? All right. How about that? All right. So, for example, if you say that you can put a nuclear warhead on a ICBM and then you launch a missile across the Pacific Ocean, uh, okay, that's pretty provocative. All right, we don't like that. We feel threatened. So that's an uh, act of war. Um, a casus belli involves uh, direct offenses or threats against the nation declaring the war, whereas a casus federis involves offenses or threats against its ally, usually one bound by a mutual defense pact. You know, those things that uh, George Washington warned us to not get entangled with. Um, either may be considered an act of war. You're going to provoke us, you're going to provoke our friends, and we're going to defend ourselves and we're going to defend our friends. The term came to be uh, came into use. Don't do that. In the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth centuries, through the writings of Hugo Grotius, Cornelius Van Binkershoek, whoever, and Jean Jacques, that guy Berlamaki, among others, and due to the rise of the political doctrines of jus ad bellum or just war theory. That's that's the doctrine of just war theory. All right, that we're not unjustly uh, just making wars of aggression or plundering our neighbors or, or uh, in an unjust war. The term uh, is also used informally to refer to any just cause a nation may claim for entering into a conflict. Uh, when the uh, American military went down to Panama, for example, to capture Manuel Noriega, that was Operation Just Cause. Okay? And uh, that's the name it was given. We had a nickname for it. We called it Operation Just Because. And Anyway, we went down there and uh, were a part of that, and, and that was the 410th MP company that had the original part of that, and then the 411th, my company, went down for the follow-up. Um, but then that got interrupted because of Desert Storm, so we got rerouted from Panama to Saudi Arabia. Um, anyway, so just cause. A nation may claim for entering into a conflict. It is used retrospectively to describe situations that arose before the term came into wide use. Uh, so, you know, Pearl Harbor, okay? Well, they attacked us, so now we have a, a just cause to go to war. Um, informally articulating a casus belli, a government typically lays out its reasons for going to war, its intended means of prosecuting the war, and the steps that others might take to dissuade it from going to war. In attempts to demonstrate that it is going to war only as a last resort, and that it has just cause for doing so. Modern international law recognizes only three lawful justifications for waging war. Self-defense, defense of an ally required by the terms of a treaty, and approval by the United Nations. All right. By the way, we had none of those when we uh, bombed Libya and had Gaddafi killed. Just saying. All right. Proskema. Okay. 
and the plural is proskemata. It's a Greek word. It's the equivalent of the Latin just uh, belly, casus belly. First popularized by Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War, the proskemata are the stated reasons for waging war, which may or may not be the same as the real reasons. Okay, and of course Thucydides called prophasis, the very term that we're learning about here in Philippians chapter 1. How cool is that? Thucydides argued that the three primary real reasons for waging war are reasonable fear, honor, and interest. While the stated reasons involved appeals to nationalism or fear-mongering as opposed to descriptions of reasonable empirical causes for fear. Anyway, so it goes on. There's uh, plenty of historical examples and it's a long, long thing. So, you may read that at your leisure. Remember, if if Paul uses this as a prayer as a rejoicing trigger. He says, either way, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So I'm rejoicing now, and I will keep on rejoicing in the future. We have the double use of the verb there. Remember, the dominant theme of Philippians is rejoice. Paul has no trouble repeating it over and over again. And this was a point of study that we used in the introduction to the book. That, uh, to keep your eyes peeled for it. And, and don't be shocked when we see examples of joy and rejoicing in uh, chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and in chapter 4. Alright? Because that's all we got is four chapters of Philippians and rejoicing occurs in every one, in every single chapter. So, uh, the verb is Cairo, the noun is kara. It appears 14 times in this book and I'm going to use tonight to review those. Make sure we're, uh, we're fresh on them and then we'll be ready to move on to the next paragraph here as well as the doctrinal study. I want to start Sunday morning on the call to ministry. How do you know when you're being called to ministry? And how do you check whether your motivations are right or your motivations are wrong uh, in, uh, in hearing that call? So, um, Cairo, 74 uses of the verb, number 54, 63. Kara, 59 uses of the noun. Number 5479. So those are the Strong's numbers and those are the usages that we have for the verb and the noun. And uh, starting in chapter 1, as I mentioned, we had that noun kara in verse 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And you might recall as we were looking at that verse, we spent some time describing why thankfulness is so essential to joy. And why if you're not joyful, maybe the reason is is because you have a grace deficiency. Maybe the reason is is that you're, you're not appreciating in thankfulness what God has supplied. And I um, remember spending quite a bit of time on that and showing the connections. You know, Cairo and Kara and Karis, they're not that far apart, are they? You know, when you think of grace being Karis and thankfulness being charizomai and uh, eucharisteo and some of these terms, they are all connected etymologically and I think conceptually in the New Testament, see. And, uh, if, and as we taught it, and I would restate it again here tonight, if, uh, if you are struggling in your rejoicing, I suspect it's because you're struggling in your thankfulness and you're struggling in your grace appreciation because that's what drives the thankfulness and that's what drives the rejoicing. And um, I think time and time again, in my life anyway, if I'm, if I'm having a hard time thinking of anything to be joyful about, 
I probably don't have anything to be thankful for because I'm so wrapped up in my selfishness or my carnality or my what I think I don't have and I deserve. Uh, I'm, I'm grumbling about what I, you know, my deficiencies or whatever, and I'm not celebrating God's faithful provision. I'm not thankful for what He has provided. And uh, you know, dummy, you know, just pay attention because He gives and He takes away, and His name is blessed both ways. And uh, thank Him for what He has not given you yet. If it's if it's really that vital and you're going to go so carnal pouting because you don't get it, um, thank God He didn't give it to you, okay? Because you can't handle it. <laughs> no, just thank Him for what He has given you and uh, in the capacity that He's given you to appreciate the grace that has been extended. And that's what it comes down to, a grace appreciation. And so we use that term a lot when we were teaching that in verse 4 and in verse 5. The grace appreciation. And then of course the two times it's used here in verse 18 um, some, some versifications though prefer to take that to start verse 19 with the second use of yes I will rejoice and so they break down the, the verses there slightly differently. Uh, but we'll have it again in verse 25. Convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so uh, that will be dealt with when we get to that point. Looking forward to what Paul had, uh, the positive expectation of what the Philippians were going to be doing. They are going to be making progress. They are going to be advancing. Not only in their faith, but in the joy that goes with that. And so some of these things we'll, uh, we'll be looking at when we get to that point. Progress and joy in the faith. Okay, And uh, if you're not having joy, I would suspect maybe that's impacting your progress. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and all of those are assumed to be true. There is, there is, there is, there is, there is. All of that is true, or it's supposed to be. Make my joy complete. Okay, so what do we learn about joy right, right here in this instance, in this context? that uh, there's joy, but it may not be complete, that it may only be in progress, it may be partial, that it may be waiting for additional elements to be added to it to make it fuller, okay? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That's one mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on, on one purpose. So there was already a joy, but Paul said, you know what can make this better? <laughs> you guys, all right? Let's, let's, uh, let's be together on this. One mind, one spirit, intent on one purpose. And that would just complete it. Make my joy complete. And so uh, we'll discuss that because the things that go with that are um, similar to what we're seeing here in the, in the positive motivated people. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And so he wants the Philippians to become imitators of the rightly motivated saints in, uh, in Ephesus that are uh, preaching on the right basis that we're seeing here in chapter 1. Get down to verse 17, verse 18. We've got some more here in chapter 2. Uh, there it is again, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, And that's not an option. That's, that's expected for you, for me, for all of us. And I I'll be preaching to myself more than anyone when we get that far. Um, 
Verse 15 says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And I love this. This is so powerful because this is true. All of us in Christ are innocent and blameless. All of us in Christ are children of God. All of us in Christ are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But we have to prove that. We have to demonstrate that. We have to live that out on a basis whereby it is exhibited, it is proven, it is demonstrated, it is documazo evaluated. And uh, the, the uh, objective reality is going to become a subjective realization as, uh, as we fulfill this here through faith. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ we'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And uh, Paul's looking forward to this too. When Philippi has the victory, Paul's their biggest cheerleader. Okay, Paul's excited more than anything. that This, this flock is doing some amazing things. It's like his I think Philippi was his consolation prize for Corinth. You know, I mean, it's just, that's a flock that he's going to boast about, he's going to rejoice in, he's going to be excited about when he watches them stand before the Bema. And so uh, he says, in the day of Christ, it will have reason to glory. Then verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And so uh, we'll have some important principles here in the sense that um, rejoicing is designed to be uh, communicative, it's designed to be uh, shared. That's what fellowship is supposed to be. It's not talking weather or sports or longhorns, you know, that's carnal anyway, Um, or uh, um, what have you, okay? Fellowship is sharing the joy. Fellowship is sharing the truth. Fellowship is is a, a spiritual function in the Lord. And so I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And this is why it becomes mutual, reciprocal uh, joy fellowship is what happens here. So I'm rejoicing, I'm sharing it with you. You're rejoicing, you're sharing it with me. If, uh, if we've got a, a weaker brother or sister hanging around that's struggling in the joy department, then maybe we'll be infectious and maybe we'll rub off. And if we can share our joy with them, then they'll start to uh, you know, look at things with fresh eyes and maybe repent of some, some uh, um, grumbling and disputing. And maybe they'll uh, participate and say, you know what? Yes, I have something to be thankful for too. And, and then next thing you know, it's just multiplied even, even further in, uh, in those ways. So we have it. All right, have I shared with you my newest question? I'm done. Never again am I going to say, how are you? I've I've permanently consigned that to the dustbin of of history. Uh, My new question is, rather than how are you, I'm going to say, are you able? Can you testify to the faithfulness of God? So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Can you testify to the faithfulness of God? Okay? And uh, please do, okay? (laughs) Testify, right? And as you testify to the faithfulness of God, then the, the other ridiculous question answers itself as far as how are you, um, you know, related to that. Anyway, that's my contribution to human history that just uh, took place here recently, and I'm going to take full credit for that. So we're going to single-handedly, uh, you'll join me in this, we're going to banish that whole mindless how are you ritual. And uh, it's, it's gotten far too much use as it is. All right. So, can you testify to the faithfulness of God? 
And uh, day by day, moment by moment, we, uh, we should be able to do that. Same chapter, down to verses 28 and 29. Um, with respect to Epaphroditus, remember he was the fellow that came from Philippi with the money that uh, helped to sustain Paul. And, and uh, while he was there, he accomplished his mission to bring the funds, and then he got sick. And, uh, uh, and that's uh, not a good thing. But he says in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your apostle, your messenger, and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Remember this? This was a big part of the, of the homework we did to start the book study because all the news traveling back and forth demands a, a closer proximity between Philippi and the origin of this letter. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. <laughs> okay? And uh, it's just one load off. He can take the load off his mind. And he can not worry about it after that because uh, he knows that with the reunion there of Epaphroditus safely back in Philippi that they're going to rejoice and uh, that'll be one less thing on Paul's mind. Um, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Okay, what does that mean to receive him in the Lord? You know, what does that mean when a wife is told to be subject to their own husbands as unto the Lord? Okay, not because they deserve it, not because Epaphroditus is so special you just can't help yourself. Okay, I mean, he is special, but that's not the point. The point is we receive them in the Lord and that the rejoicing is in the Lord. Hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And so uh, that's what we're dealing with there. So you have the rejoice in verse 28 and the joy in verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. And uh, we'll go through it. That's coming up in chapter 2. I think we've got illustrations of it in our own ministry here. We've got illustrations of it with um, Pastor Cliff, with Pastor Dan, with men that, that have been sent forth. And anytime they come back, isn't it a joy? Isn't it like a homecoming week or something? You know, we had Pastor Dan here because, you know, the Lord sent a hurricane and they had to evacuate Corpus Christi. So, woohoo, good for us. We get Pastor Dan for a Sunday morning and that's kind of fun. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a joy. Or when uh, Fassel and Carrie come in from Pakistan, man. You talk about risking their life for the, the sake of Christ and complete what is lacking on our behalf. Uh, of course, we're going to receive Him in the Lord in all joy and hold men like Him in high regard. Absolutely. And it's a privilege and an honor to do so. Delighted to do so in that. Alright, chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And you can imagine a congregation would say, alright, Paul, enough. We get it already. <laughs> okay? Come on. How many times are you going to say it? 14 actually, but um, <laughs> there's a reason why. Okay? He goes on to say, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. You know, what's a little bit of ink and parchment? You know. And nowadays it's not even that, it's just bits on a, you know, bits and bytes on an electronic email or something, right? Um, hey, 
no sweat. I can say it again. I can say it again. I can say it again. And uh, not, not difficult for me to do. And it's a safeguard for you. It is to their benefit. So rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Are you rejoicing? If not, start because you're supposed to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks. If, uh, if you're not in a rejoicing mode, then uh, that's a problem. All right. I better get out of there or I'm going to start getting distracted by beware of the dogs. And, yep, see? You saw that coming? I'm not sure what that means if the pastor gets that predictable that the whole congregation saw that just jumping out the page at you, right? Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. Okay, well we'll have some fun with that too. Chapter 4, verse 1, verse 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 10. Um, remember how chapter 3 closes where we are following the right examples, avoiding the wrong examples, that we are uh, pressing on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're not retired. We never think that we, we've arrived. We never rest on our laurels. Okay? We're not going to be like the Olympic runner that figures, hey, I'm so far ahead, or I got this in the bag, and I can just kind of coast. That's the one that's going to trip up and fall on their face and not even cross the finish line while uh, gold, silver, and bronze go to other people. So we're pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, pressing on. And that's the perfect attitude. Don't assume that you've stored up anything. Assume that uh, there's nothing there except a big bonfire waiting for you, so use today to at least get some kind of gold, silver, and precious stones. And uh, living on that example. All right. So our citizenship is in heaven. We don't want to be like this bad crowd where they, they're, uh, they're enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, that's 319, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be eagerly waiting for the rapture, day by day, moment by moment, with eagerness, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. The Father has seated Him in His right hand. He has authority to subject everything to Himself and... Uh, He's waiting for the day that he can subject the bride to himself in the rapture of the church. So therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. He's talking to this church like they're his uh, wife or something, the wife he used to have. Or he calls her beloved, he calls her joy, calls her his crown. And uh, you know something like this, if it was in Song of Solomon, we would, we'd be reading it a different way. But it's in Philippians, and it's an apostle talking to a local church. And I find that uh, significant. And this is, of course, where Yodi and Syneche are supposed to get together and get along and fix whatever it is that's caused them to fight. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Okay, Paul, I get the idea now. But again, it's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's not rejoice in the cancer. It's not rejoice in the death of your husband. Okay, Judy is rejoicing, not in Mike's death, but in the Lord. And how uh, Mike 
is presently face to face with the Lord. How Mike is, uh, it brings Judy great joy to think that Mike is getting all his questions answered. <laughs> that he's, he's got a big notebook with a whole lot of details in there that he's trying to get sorted out. And, and I tell you, that is a joy for me too, for Judy and for all of us to think, wow, to be absent from the body and to be at home with Jesus Christ. How fun is that? And so we can rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, are we rejoicing over a hurricane? Well, I think it's pretty cool that the whole country has been watching Texas and pulling together and working together and loving one another and serving one another and seeing a whole lot of things. And, and um, <laughs> hey, it's been kind of interesting to watch non-Texans watch it and say, wow, is it always like that? <laughs> okay. It's interesting to me, so I can rejoice in that. Um, different things. Uh, down to verse 10. Uh, let's see. Verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And that's a whole rum of meat right there that we're going to take some time with. Because learning is only step one. Learned and received and heard and seen in me. And then you've got to put it into practice. Practice these things. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And this was another text that we examined in the introduction to the book, that it gives us an indication about the time frame and an indication that Philippi had gone through a very thin financial season where they weren't able to provide financial support for Paul until just recently when they heard about his imprisonment and God had blessed them and they had the funds and so they dispatched Epaphroditus because they had the concern and they had the opportunity. Those, those came together. And then that gets expanded here in verses uh, 11 and following, 11 through 14. So I don't think we have to go through that again. If you want more on that, you can get it in the introduction that we did to uh, prepare, for, prepare for this book study. So, all right. Well, then that's the last of that. We have just a couple minutes left. And uh, let me go back to chapter 1. And we'll come back to this third section. I'll tease you with a preview for what we're going to be doing on Sunday. Philippians 1.18 and 1.19 here. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see prayer as an instrument, prayer as a vehicle through which do things really change because we prayed? Yes, they do. And had they not been praying, would this uh, deliverance have taken place? Not according to this text. This text comes about, deliverance comes about through prayers, multiplied prayers, and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so um, as we look at 19 through 30, let me spotlight a couple of things for you, because in verse 19 is the word deliverance, and in verse uh, 28 is the word salvation. It's the same word, okay? And it, and it serves at the top end and the bottom end of this, of this structure, of this, of this paragraph, of this section 
of the chapter. And he talks about his deliverance, but he closes with their deliverance. That, uh, that they're going to be striving together in the faith. They're going to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. And so it's a powerful uh, section here, and I'm gonna, we're going to have some fun going through it. But it opens with soteria, it closes with soteria. Paul had every expectation of his own deliverance, and he has every expectation of their deliverance as well. And so it's going to be useful for us to talk about soteria, to talk about salvation, how it's used and the three different ways that it's used, and, and to understand that it's not talking about receiving eternal life and going to heaven when you die. Okay? But it's talking about the other realms of deliverance that God will do experientially in the uh, course of your ministry. So we'll deal with that. Um, of course, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, uh, where if we are properly oriented to the will of God in our ministry, then matters of life and death uh, don't concern us. <laughs> All right? we uh, Sure, we may have our druthers, but ultimately... It's God's good pleasure. And uh, if, if we remain on in the flesh, well, then that means more work to do, more service. If we don't remain on in the flesh, well, then uh, all the better. Okay, that's a promotion. Thank you, Lord. Um, what took you so long? <laughs> you know, because, uh, man, heaven's where I want to be. So I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And there's a lot of meat here. There's a lot of doctrine here whereby we look at our testing. We look at our circumstances. We were talking about this at prayer meeting tonight. There's choices in front of you and there's directions and things and you're wondering, is this the will of God? What am I doing? And uh, you evaluate, well, what's necessary? What is it that He's assigned? What is it that in the will of God that's going to glorify Him? And uh, and yeah, there's reasons to pick option A and option B. You can't take both, so what's the Lord going to do? And we'll get some good good provision there. Okay? Um, anyway, that's we'll start that. Actually, before we start that, uh, like I said, we're going to have a doctrinal study. We're going to open up Sunday morning with an idea of call to ministry. Uh, if we're called to the ministry, uh, why is it that He's calling us? <laughs> and what is it that he expects? Do I have the right attitude for this? Do I have the wrong attitude for this? And uh, can I respond in the right attitude so as to be effective in the call? So uh, I think that'll be a useful doctrinal study for us, and I don't know how many classes it'll take, but um, we'll get get that taken care of and then, then be ready for the, the paragraph here. So, all right, let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings to be here tonight. We do pray, Father, not only for our brothers and sisters that are recovering from Harvey, but now, Father, we've got brothers and sisters that are anticipating Irma and then uh, Jose and then whatever comes next. Uh, But Father, uh, it's been an interesting year and you are clearly at work. So um, be faithful. And Father, we uh, thank you for this truth. We thank you for Philippians and I pray that we'd be equipped to not only understand what it's saying, but also to be fully convicted of the, uh, the what then, the so what question. Uh, what does this mean? What do I do with it? How does this shape me? And uh, being called to ministry then, Father, um, I want to make sure that it's uh, in love. I want to make sure that it's motivated properly, that it's not selfish ambition or any uh, false motivations. 
let uh, let not me or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers or the piano player or the nursery or anybody, Father, I don't want any member of Austin Bible Church to be serving on the basis of a pretense, but Father, serving you in spirit and in truth. So uh, open our eyes to the so what of this message and equip us, Father, to glorify your Son. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.